Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Trouble with Sex. I'm Dr. Tammy. I am so excited for today's episode. I have a fabulous guest, and she looks great. I wish you could see her. You should see her glasses. She is an award-winning educator, a curriculum writer, a facilitator, and a sexologist. I have Bianca Loriano with me. She is a, the foundress of the Women of Color Sexual Health Network, the Latinigris Project called Anti-Up, Virtual Freedom Professional Development School for Justice Workers, and she hosts the latinosexuality.com website. She has written several curricula that focus on communities of color, including What's the Real Deal About Love and Solidarity, and Communication Mixtape, Speak on It, Volume 1. Is there more volumes coming? That's what I want to know. And she wrote the Sexual and Reproductive Justice Discussion Guide for the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Bianca has been on the board of CLAGS, the LGBTQ Center at SUNY, the Black Girl Project, and Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. She lives in Oakland, California. And this is the exciting thing that we're going to talk about today. I'm so anxious to hear about this. She's the lead educator for the Netflix film Crip Camp, which just came out. And it is really working to create like a new understanding around disability justice. Sexy listeners, we know you're out there, but we want to know more about you. And we want to know about your relationships and your concerns about sex. If you want to spare just a couple minutes, take our listener survey at the troublewithsex.com homepage. Click on the survey link and just type in your email. So please visit the troublewithsex.com right now to take our survey. I'm so happy that you're here. Thanks for having me. I really am thrilled for you about this Netflix film, and I want to hear more about it. And I want you to tell people, like, who's producing this. Yeah, absolutely. So Crip Camp is a film that's produced by the Obamas, as in Barack and Michelle. And it's one of their first films that they are producing. And um, with that in mind, they are working with Judy Human. And she is one of the leaders of the disability rights movement here in the United States. And for folks who don't know, the disability rights movement really extended the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to include disabled people as being people who are protected and require specific kinds of support. You know, they added so much to what disabled people are experiencing in the world from challenging separate but equal in like learning spaces and really allowed disabled people to be contributing members of society. And now we're uh, creating a curriculum that talks about disability justice. And so it's taking the disability rights work to the next level. And it's probably going to be one of the first curriculums of its kind, which is exciting. But also even more exciting is the possibility of what happens after it's out in the world. So not just what happens when people incorporate it or implement the lesson plans, but also what people are like, oh, you didn't get this right let's remix it or let's add to it. Let's make it better and stronger. So those are the things that I'm really excited about when I create something and offer it to the world. It's such an important project. It's such, you know, I feel like you're just like meant to do this in the world. Exactly. Yeah. I really feel like this is where I'm supposed to be right now. Can you tell our listeners, like, how did you get into this particular line of work? I mean, you're basically a a sex educator And you really are quite vocal about reproductive justice and disability justice and sexual health. 
you know, so you have an interesting background. You know, I grew up in the 70s and I had really radical parents at the time. And so when I say that, people are like, what do you mean? My parents were hippies. You know, they were all about, you know, art and expression and what that looked like in our home as a young person, you know, I grew up with the joy of sex first edition. I grew up with our bodies ourselves. You know, these are just part of the texts that were in our home next to, you know, like the family Bible and <laughs> all the other things. So it was something that we were exposed to as young people in our family, but also my parents, you know, they were from Puerto Rico. They had migrated from the island to Washington, D.C. So there was also some cultural pieces there where even though those items are present, there really wasn't a affirming conversation that that went along with being exposed to these texts, right? So as a kid, I grew up thinking, oh, this is a book. The Joy of Sex is a book about my parents having sex because they look, you know, my dad's a hairy bearded dude. And, you know, <laughs> like they just look like my parents in the, in the book. And so what that did was nurture curiosity, which I think is really great and which has maintained for the present, to the present for me. And what it also did was separate us from our family. So we experienced this really different approach to assimilation that many newly immigrant families experience on their own in a different way. But because Puerto Rico has such a different relationship with the United States as a colonial status, it's still a territory, we had a different assimilation experience. One where I had one parent that didn't speak English well, one parent that did. It was a mashup of things. And so when I started to come into the field, it was probably in undergraduate work when I realized that, oh, nobody's talking to me about sex and sexuality but a lot of my friends are becoming pregnant and choosing to maintain that pregnancy, mm. carry it to term and parent. And that was just not something I wanted. And so however it turned out, I wasn't one of those people that experienced a pregnancy at a young age. And I knew that there was something different about me and my choices. And also it was connected deeply to my family and how we talked about things. So, you know, the ways that we talked about uh, birth control, you know, the conversations were things like, the birth control kills Puerto Rican women. Oh, so you're not going to on it. Oh, my you know God. I mean? like, wait, wait, yeah. wait. Let's just slow down there. Birth <laughs> yeah. control kills Puerto Rican women, so you're not going to yeah. want to go on it? I have never right. heard that. Oh, yeah. So it, this is part of, like, the history of reproductive and contraceptive coercion in the United States, specifically for Puerto Rican women, Haitian women. The trials were done in Puerto Rico with Puerto Rican women, and there were a handful of women that did die. And so my mother were those young women's peers, you know, my mother, you know, their children that they had, and then they were recruited into the trials. Those daughters were the women that my mom went to school with, right? So she had a very close connection to a lot of the ways that today we understand informed consent that was just not being offered to Puerto Rican women at the time for a variety of different reasons. And that's part of like the legacy of reproductive justice that talks about that coercive approach that we don't always recognize all the time, but it definitely was a language that I grew up with where that was the you know, that was the approach. And at the time, that was the only hormonal method that we really had. And so for me, I knew that, okay, I'm going to use a paragard IUD or internal and external condoms. Like that's, those are going to be my two choices, right? So it was a very different experience from other Spanish-speaking families 
where they weren't even talking about birth control. You know, the birth control they were talking about was like abstinence and marriage, as if that was a birth control in its own right. And so, you know, just knowing that was, it offered me different opportunities, but it also, you know, gave me a different historical perspective of what it means to access birth control. So birth control was never told to me, like, never use it. Instead, it was like, you need to make different decisions about what the options are. And so I realized that that was a conversation that I never, that my other peers didn't have as well. Well, you had a mixed message about like, I did. you know, birth control. On one hand, it could kill you. On the other hand, you know, you had this very hip mother who wanted to let you know you had choices. Exactly. And, you know, and that's the thing, like my parents were really radical in all these ways, but it only went so far, you know, like as a kid, like when I started menstruating, I hit it, you know, I knew it was happening, but I wanted to go to the pool. So I didn't tell my parents that it was (laughs) menstruating. You know, it was all those things that teenagers do when they know enough to be dangerous. Right. And so it's one of those things that I learned as working with young people and now training parents and working with parents and reminding them that even the things you don't talk about that, sends messages to your kids. Oh, that's so, so. Such a good point. Yeah, it's the things that don't get talked about that usually have a big influence. So let me ask you a question that I ask all my guests. What do you think is the biggest trouble with sex today? Do I have to just pick one thing? <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the troubles with sex today is that people really only see sex as connected to our genitals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's just not all there is. And when we begin to realize that sex goes beyond our genitalia, we begin to really explore intimacy in a more expansive way. And we also give ourselves opportunities to acknowledge how our bodies are changing and how, you know, our genitals change too. And that's okay. And that's the gift of aging that many of us, if we have the privilege to age, get to experience. And I know a lot of my friends who are aging now and treating perimenopause or who are menopausal or they're struggling a lot with like a shift in libido or a shift in, you know, vaginal wetness and all these other things that come up. And I'm like, yeah, this is what our bodies do. You know, so it's not a reason to like get anxious unless it's impacting you in a particular way. But there's also just the reality that their partners, if they're men or have penises, are also not talking about what they're experiencing, how the refractory period is impacting their lives. And so it's a more holistic approach, I think, to talking about sexuality and also making it a more common experience that if we begin to recognize that we can have sex beyond our genitals, what does that mean? (laughs) And what does that open up for us, for ourselves, but also with our our lovers and partners? So what does it mean to have sex beyond your genitals? Like, what do we, what would you recommend to people? Like someone like me, postmenopausal, whose vagina hurts all the time. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm a sex therapist. I know what to do. <laughs> right. I'm not stupid. Uh, you know, I got right. lube. I got a ton of lube. Yes. I have a sponsor, <laughs> Uber Lube. They're great. Right. They are great. <laughs> they are. You know, there's a lot of things that you can do, but I think I think what you're saying is super important. Like the idea that, you know, you're not just your labia, your vagina, your clitoris. Like there's a, a whole other thing going on here. There's a whole map of stuff that you can you can use. Yeah, I think a lot for for people with disabilities, especially who like experience chronic pain or whose bodies can't move in a particular way. You know, that those are communities where they're like, oh, I don't get a lot of content geared towards me until it becomes an issue or a negative thing that people want to repair or fix. And so I think one of the things that I usually encourage people is to begin with this understanding, which is a principle of disability justice, is wholeness, that all of us are whole, that we're fully complete 
human beings, no matter what we're experiencing, that we're not broken and we don't need a cure and we don't need to be fixed. And, you know, just shifting that understanding can be really revolutionary for some people who have always been pathologized or whose desire or sexual expression has really been rooted in a medical association. And so when I share that with people that, you know, sex goes beyond our genitals, it's really about expanding, well, what does that mean, right? Like, what does it mean for me to experience pleasure when I take a nice warm shower and I use the, you know, the soap that I enjoy or I use this body scrub that I like, you know, what are the things that I can say to myself? Oh, I have the hands of my mother. If I'm missing my mom in the shower, you know, think there's just so many different affirmative experiences that people can have. And I think really that kind of approach to coming back into our bodies for ourselves and really reflecting on how have we experienced just the body terrorism of just being socialized as women or socialized in a particular gendered, how we've been raised to not enjoy parts of our bodies and really coming back into that space is important. And I say that because a lot of people are like, but I'm constantly in pain. How can I have a pleasurable experience? And, you know, it's trial and error. And a lot of people don't want to hear that. They want like an instant, you know, find, but that's not how our bodies work. Yeah, It's about taking the time to figure out what we need. It's also about communication, right? So like figuring out how am I going to communicate what I enjoy, but also how am I going to communicate to my partner? I'm consenting to, to sex, but I'm not consenting to this experience or this particular activity. And also giving ourselves permission to explore. I think sometimes, you know, I have friends who are like, but I've looked at my vulva for, you know, the past four decades. And it's like, that's great. And it's also changed. And it's okay to like acknowledge the change. And it's okay to not look at your vulva for a week or so, or whatever that looks like. I think there's a range of things that can sometimes feel overwhelming for me to like list. (laughs) But I think one of the main things is to, you know, be gentle with ourselves. The same kind of gentleness that we want to extend to our lovers and partners, our best friends, our children. We need to do the same thing with ourselves. And sometimes, I know for me, taking my own advice, it's sometimes hard when it comes to me being like, but I don't want to acknowledge that my, you know, libido has shifted and my partner's has as well. And now we seem to be off the same timeline and wavelength. And that's the human experience. You know, it's the ebb and flow. Almost every couple I know experiences it. And it doesn't have to end a relationship. It can really enhance it in a different way. So, you know, just holding hands can be a really beautiful experience. You know, kissing, snuggling, like these are all the things that I think can build intimacy with people, but also thinking about intimacy that we have with other people who aren't our partners. You know, how do we want to build intimacy with our friends? And that was something that really came up for me a couple of years ago when my mom died. And it was this real visceral loss that nobody could have told me (laughs) or prepared me for and it was hard like your listeners can't see but I'm six feet tall and that's without shoes and not counting the hair and so you know with sneakers on I'm like six two and a lot of my friends aren't and so what that means is a lot of my friends who were like five two wanted to give me hugs and I'm like your nose is literally in my rib cage that's not comfortable for me (laughs) let's lay down and have you snuggle or hug me and they were like lay down in the bed that's something that you only do certain things with certain people and I'm just like but I need a hug and you said you wanted to give me one and right so just having those conversations about like what does intimacy look like with our friendships Mm -hmm. I think it's also really important as well because it doesn't have to be sexual and people just you know 
have a lot of ideas around what you can and cannot do in a bed or with certain people or laying down. Well, especially now with the pandemic, it like makes everything more complicated, right? Absolutely. And like, that's the thing where I'm like, oh, everybody's experiencing skin hunger in a particular way. And I totally know that because I experienced that going through this grief stage. You know, I wasn't partnered. I was living by myself in New York City. All my friends were in Brooklyn and I was in the Bronx. You know, it was just really hard to find people to offer affection in a particular way. And now we see it so globally for so many people that I think people are really struggling with. How do I self-soothe? That's not a masturbation experience. And, you know, I'm, I'm here for massage therapists doing one hour sessions of like, here's how you can self-soothe your body. Here's how you can do it with a partner. Here's how different things work in the pandemic. That's a great idea. Yeah, I know, right? To have online sessions where a massage therapist can tell you, okay, do this, now do this, now do that. Yeah, I haven't seen too many who have done it, so. No, but it's a good gig for those massage therapists that are all out of business. Absolutely. Charge people 30 bucks. That's smart. People. Yeah, exactly. That's very so you smart. massage therapists listening, go do that. Yes, <laughs> yes. And especially, you know, I mean, there's so many lanes you could go down with that. You could focus on people with disability. You could focus on people who don't have partners. You could focus on people who do have partners. You could focus on people with many partners. Exactly. And also, like, you know, Uberloo being one of the your sponsors, like, that's a great option as well because people use it not just for lubrication of you know their genitals but for all other parts of their bodies exactly. you know it was like it's used for shaping like there you can use it for, as a massage support you could use it in your <laughs> hair so you could just like you know do a little hair movement exactly right like a, a scalp massage that feels amazing <laughs> not that that's so yeah. good yeah so how are you staying sexy right now during all this time like is it hard you know I mean, you're as busy as i am i think Oh my gosh, I know, right? So I feel exhausted <laughs> at the end of the day sometimes. And so it's really for me about boundaries where, you know, everything wants to be on Zoom or on a Google Meet or some kind of virtual platform. And for me, I had to make it really clear that like, I'm not doing more than three of those virtual things where you have to see my face. I have to see yours. I have to wear um, clothes. Right. Like that's <laughs> I not, I wanna, that's not the life I want to live. <laughs> so I think for me, it's really been like, Nope, I'm too, I'm busy that day. You know, once I hit my my mark of three uh, meetings, and that's really been great because there's been a shift in my household with my partner where we both had our own independent lives and made our own money. But now with the pandemic, my partner has lost a lot of gigs, and so many more gigs have come my way, and that shifted our dynamic and our relationship. But my partner loves to cook, and so what that means is I'm not cooking which is great for me, (laughs) but that also means that my partner has to make three meals a day, right? And how we cooked and did life before the pandemic, I don't know, Tammy, but (laughs) it's been this really great swap for us where my partner gets to, you know, care for me and tend to me in a way that he never was able to because he was working and was just too tired when he came home. And now we're in a relationship where he gets to be like, I'm going to make the menu. Like, so it's a different shift in power where we're sharing power, but like, I don't, you know, he manages the kitchen and that's the kind of household I grew up in. You know, my dad was the one that didn't speak English. So it was hard for him to, you know, get those gigs where people were like, oh dude, you need to speak English and you need to shave your beard because people need to see your face. And that just, he was like, I'm not going to do that. And so we had, you know, a stay at home dad who was an artist and was painting and trying to get gallery openings. So I never grew up being socialized 
in that traditional way of a girl learning how to cook. So my mom was the one that had the full-time job. And, you know, so, so this is a very common experience for me. It's not out of the ordinary for me, but to see my partner really shine and love the fact that like, I love it when you clean off the counter and I can come home and just start making cookies or whatever it is. That's very sexy. I think that's it very is, hot. Right? <laughs> yes. So I love language is like shifted, which has been great. So that, you know, feeling sexy for us right now is about like, how are we meeting not just our uh, basic needs, but how are we meeting our needs in a way that like, demonstrates that we are here for each other, that we care for each other, that we want to make sure that that's sustainable for our relationship. That's really Um, nice. Yeah. And what we're also doing is like going on Zillow and being like, okay, how much money do we need if we want to buy this house? And just fantasizing. Right. (laughs) Shopping. Shopping. Doesn't matter if it's shoes or a house or whatever. Shopping. Yeah. (laughs) I totally get it. And also just, oh, if we rented this house, we could do a photo shoot of this. Right. So like really fantasizing together in a way that allows us to also take a little bit of a vacation online. So, you know, that's new for us. You know, we usually fantasize in a different way, but this is the type of fantasy that for us talks about us having a future. Yeah, it's a vision. It's a vision yeah, exercise. It's yeah. Totally visioning. So that feels great. And we're doing a lot of cuddling and snuggling and making out. So a lot of the things that we did when we were teenagers are now really exciting for us. I think our listeners need to hear all of these suggestions. <laughs> Those are very good suggestions, including Thank the you. snuggling and the making out and acting like teenagers. And yes. when we come back after a word from our sponsor, we're going to talk more with Bianca about, you know, there's so much going on in the world right now. And I want to know more about how you are finding balance and maybe you can give our listeners some tips about that. So we'll be right back after we talk about Uberlube. When it's time to get it on, the last thing you want to do is be rummaging around looking for your lube. I hate that when you're searching in your bottom drawer and you can't find anything or you're at the bottom of the tube. Well, with Uberlube, you don't have to do that. Not only is there a luxurious, silky feeling on your skin and your intimate parts, but the packaging is gorgeous. It comes in this clear, beautiful glass bottle that you just leave on your nightstand. And whenever you want some pure pleasure, you just pump away. Go to uberlube.com and use the promo code Dr. Tammy. that's D-R-T-A-M-M-Y. You'll get 10% off plus free shipping anywhere in the U.S. That's uberlube.com. U-B-E-R-L-U-B-E dot com and use Dr. Tam. I have a question for one of our listeners. It's John from Jamaica, Queens, New York. Can you talk about how race is playing into sex in this country right now? I'm very concerned. Absolutely. You know, I think race has always played a role in this country and it's just a different shift in how we're talking about it currently. You know, it's, it's a variety of different ways that it's showing up. I think for me, it's always been present. And the shift that's happening now is a lot more focused on, okay, what does inclusion mean for the work that we do? What does equity mean to do, it, to do this work in an equitable way? And that's, I think, where a lot of people are struggling in certain ways because they've been told that, like, equality is what we're going for. And they're now hearing that, like, equality isn't what many people want. It's equity that many people want. So tell us the difference. Yeah, please explain. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a hard concept to understand. And so usually what I share with people is a little example of, okay, if we were in a classroom and we were sitting together in a circle and I said, okay, everybody give me your shoes. And we pile in our shoes in the middle of the room. 
And what I do is then redistribute the shoes, right? So everybody walked in with a pair of shoes. Everybody's going to walk out with a pair of shoes. And it doesn't have to be the same pair of shoes, but you still leave with a pair of shoes. Whether they fit you or not, that's not my problem. Whether they're the kind of shoe that you wanted, I don't care. Whether it's the color that you like, doesn't matter, right? The goal is everybody came in with some shoes. Everybody's leaving with some shoes. That's what equality is. Right. If we really wanted to focus on equity, what I would do is say, give me all your shoes, put it in the middle of the circle. And now I'm going to go around and ask people, what shoes do you want? What color do you want? Do you want heels or sneakers or high tops or open toed? And then give you the shoe that you want and need and that fits all the things for you to do what you need to do. And that's what equity is. What if you want your own shoes back or what if you want and someone else wants your shoes? Yeah. So if you want your old shoes back, you can just say, give me my old shoes. And that would happen, right? If other people are like, well, I want those shoes. The conversation would be, okay, so I hear you saying you want similar shoes to this. Let's fit you so that you get the shoes that you need. Oh, you've never had this, you know, orthopedic support thing. Let's fit, you know, let's fit you for those, right? So it's about hearing people for what they're saying. And oftentimes when people are like, I want that, what they're saying is, I want to experience that as well. Or, I really am attracted to that. How can I get it in my life? And so it's not about taking away from someone else. It's about helping those people begin to understand that you can access this too. And here's how I'm going to help you do it. And so I think those are the two differences that come up for people who are doing this work right now and who are also who have been socialized to understand that equality is a really great thing. And I'm not saying that it's not. I'm just saying that when it comes to incorporating a different approach that's deeply rooted in the body autonomy for all people, which is to be able to, the human right to make the decisions about what happens to our bodies, that equity is really what we need and not so much the equality piece. And so that's hard for people to really grasp all the time. And it also, for many people, feels like when they hear it, they think, but that's just too much work. And, you know, disabled people hear this a lot. Well, it's too much to accommodate you. It's, it's too much to pay these ASL interpreters to interpret what we're talking about. It's too expensive to get people to caption the presentations. It's too accessible to get everybody to not wear fragrances. Whatever it is, disabled people have heard it all their lives. And the challenge is that it's non-disabled people that make those rules and that set those prices that then non-disabled people say are too expensive to include disabled people. And so it's just this constant circle of, okay, there needs to be a strategic use of the power that we have. And so why don't we negotiate with an ASL interpreter and invite them to say, okay, this is how much money we have. How long can you work with us? Right? So maybe it's also realizing that ASL interpretation really isn't that much money. It's literally inviting someone who can translate what's going on for the community who's going to be present. And I think that's that's how it is for sex therapy as well and sex professionals is that for so long and even probably today, people think that the work that we do is like extra, that it's not essential and that it's, just, it's like this, you know, fun thing. And it's like a lot of people come to us because they feel ashamed, they're scared, they're confused. It's not always fun stuff that people want to talk to us about. And it really is life-changing and impacting work. I think when we begin to recognize, well, we already recognize that, but when other people begin to recognize how profoundly important the sexuality profession is and how it's deeply connected to the way that we move in the world, I think that's when we begin to understand that, oh, I really need to get more training to understand what are the ways that anti-Black racism might show up in my clientele or in the way that I take a sexual health history or in the way that I'm recommending a medication. Am I over-medicating 
or suggesting an over-medicated plan for a particular person. I mean, these are some of the ways, it's really about the questions. And sometimes the questions are more important than the answers when it comes to addressing what type of microaggressions or oppression might be occurring, whether we realize it or not. And I think oftentimes what I've seen is that a lot of people get turned off because of how they're hearing the message being shared with them. And that's real. (laughs) And sometimes it's also about how people choose to receive the message. And, you know, oftentimes when I share a lot of the work that I do, it's from an education perspective, because that's what I am. I'm an educator. I'm not a therapist. And I know that. And I stay in my lane. (laughs) And so from an education point of view, Sometimes people think that I'm being paternalistic when really I'm like, these are just resources. You can do what you need to with them. And if you want to do more and don't know what to do, you can contact me and we can figure out how that might work in a particular way. And so there's so many different approaches to answering this one question. There is. There's a lot of different angles to it. Yeah, exactly. And there's so many different ideas. And I think it's, you know, the takeaway message here for me, it would be that not all people of color, not all Black people, not, not all Indigenous people are the same. They don't have the same values and beliefs. And it's hard to, to understand that, that everybody's messy, everybody's human, and everybody messes up, including people who are you know, disproportionately being murdered in our society. And so what does that mean for us? Well, I think it means that there's a lot of ways that we can show support. And when people are like, I don't know what to do, I think it's also about fear of doing the wrong thing. And I usually encourage people, you just need to try one thing. If it works, great. And if it doesn't work, try something else, get the feedback and try again. Because that's what ending oppression looks like. It means we have to try and it means we're gonna mess up. (laughs) And it means we gotta try again and learn the lesson and do it differently. And that's scary, but that's also life, you know? So incorporating that into understanding, like, how do you parent? Parenting is a lot like that. You know, you try to do the right thing, and then sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, and you have to hear what your child shares with you to make the best approach. And that's what we do a lot of times in the work that we do. I think people are just afraid of failure. So can you leave our listeners with a couple words of advice about, especially because there's so much going on in the world right now, Uh, so much unrest and, you know, stuff coming to the surface that has to be healed, a lot of trauma in our history. And all this stuff has got to be, it's got to come to the surface, it's got to be aired out, and it's got to be healed. But a lot of the, you know, the unmasking of things so that we can all breathe clearer, Mm -hmm. uh, it makes things very stressful. People are chronically stressed. There's, you know, acute stress that happens every day. And then there's the chronic underlying stealth kind of stress that sneaks up on you. Like, you know, you think Mm -hmm. you're okay, but then you're wondering why, like, why do I have this headache? Why is my back killing me? Why is my disability, like, is my autoimmune disease acting out? Like, what the hell's happening? So can you just give us a couple pointers, like how to get out of your head, Uh, maybe into your body to experience pleasure or to find some kind of balance? Like how do you create balance? Like any tips that you can leave our listeners with? Yeah. I mean, I love the word interdependence because it's a word that like saves disabled people's lives. But also for this time and this moment that we're in on the planet, we're not going to survive without each other. And that's just how it is, you know, whether you like it or not, That's so true. we That's need each other. True that. And, and when I say that, I don't just mean that you need your partner and you need your best friend. I mean, we need community and community looks a lot of different ways right now. Sometimes it looks like 
a Zoom hangout with your friends. Sometimes it looks like texting. Sometimes it looks like an old-fashioned phone call, which is really great. And so for me, it's it's really about reminding people, like, who are the people that you want to bring closer to you? And who are the people that are part of your safety plan? And who would you go to? You know, who are your people that you can go to to find support? And I think that's a really important thing to do now. But also, it was important to do before the pandemic. I train a lot of sex educators, and they go into public schools. And unfortunately, in this country, public schools are now a place that people go to with guns and shoot people. And so it was a reminder that, like, we need safety plans for ourselves. We might have them for our children, but who is your emergency contact? Who's your emergency contact that has the key to your house, that's going to pick up your kid, that the school knows, who has access to your bank account? You know, all these different things are really a part of a safety plan. And when you when one person begins to do it and you identify three different people, it's kind of like this snowball effect where you reach out to those three people and you're like, hey, you're on my safety list. Here's the list. I'm going to share it. When you have time, please share with me what your safety plan is. It uh, sparks something in people where they're like, oh, yeah, I don't have this and I need it. So I would say start to consider what a safety plan looks like for you because safety is subjective. People feel safe in different ways. So that's going to look different for you. What my safety plan looks like is who's the Spanish-speaking person that's going to talk to my dad because when he gets hysterical and scared, he goes straight to his language of origin, which is Spanish. So I identify who's the Spanish speaker that will speak in Spanish to my dad. I list, you know, what's my insurance? What medications am I on? How can you contact my partner? Who are the three other people in my life that will know how to access all the other people in my life? And then I have people who I'm like, who are the two white people in my life who are on my safety plan, who if we need to talk to a lawyer or if we need to talk to law enforcement, these are the white people who are going to do it for us. And that's how my safety plan looks, right? Because I... The people of color in my life do not want to do that work. And the white people in my life realize this is what it looks like to show up for you and to strategically use the privilege of being lighter skinned, racially white people. We can do this work to support you if you're ever in harm's way. And it's a great idea. Yeah. I mean, it's a really, I mean, that's what interdependence looks like for me. And it also, you know, it's, it's being creative. You know, the creativity part is really important, I think, for all of us, especially during a pandemic. But it also is about taking care of yourself and, and your communities and shifting what that looks like. So for me, when I think about, you know, caring for myself, I have people in my life that I text where I'm like, I'm having a hard body day. Tell me three things that I like about my body, please, because I can't figure them out. And they will tell me, here are three things that I like about your body. And here are three things that I've heard you say you like about your body. So really finding support in different ways. It doesn't have to follow like an expensive plan. It can really be something that you do on like, you know, open platform. But having those conversations are really about sustainability and also surviving together because... And finding pleasure, Absolutely. Where you can find it. Right. And pleasure in the survival. Pleasure in being able to say, who's on my side? Who's going to have my back? That's a pleasurable experience, you know? And Absolutely. that's what I would encourage people to, to start to consider thinking about. Bianca, I love that idea. I'm going to put this idea of creating a safety plan on our show notes because I think it's a great suggestion. And I love all the things that you have on your list. So I'm going to put Bianca's safety plan on our show notes so that our listeners can create theirs right away. I was just out of power for six days and I thought, you know, this could be like the future. Like what if we, what if we have no internet? What if you have no power? Like you kind of need a plan. I am not a pioneer woman. I, I'm not, I'm not doing well for that. Like I'm not a princess, but I kind of need electricity. I need like a toilet that flushes and hot water. 
Yeah, uh, I've told my partner the same thing. I was like, look, I'm not living during this apocalypse because no. I need indoor plumbing and, you know, I like refrigerated things. So. I need ice. I need right. ice. It's not yes. a lot to ask. I need drinking water that's cold and I like yes. my wine chilled. Exactly. <laughs> so, Bianca, how can people find you if they want to know more about your Netflix film, Crip Camp? And if they want to find out more about your work and if they want to talk to you about what you're up to. Sure. So it's my first name and my last name for my website, BiancaLoriano.com. And if you want to learn more about the film Crip Camp, there is some amazing virtual free experiences that are occurring. And that is at CripCamp.com, which is spelled C-R-I-P-C-A-M-P.com. And how do we meet the Obamas? Did you, did you mention um, that? You know, <laughs> I have yet to master that, but... So the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act was in July. So he posted a, a video on his Instagram and it was on Rolling Stone magazines. And just one last question before we end. Uh, like, what can people do to uh, be involved? Yeah, you know, I think having conversations are really important. And it's great for people to read, but it's also important for us to talk about what we're reading and how we're receiving it. Because when we start to talk with other people, one, that's inter- being interdependent. But two, we're also able to create new knowledge with other people. And so I think continuing conversation, being open to what's possible, and staying curious is really what I would encourage people to do right now. And allow that curiosity, whether it's rage or joy or whatever, to guide you into another action plan for the future. Great. Good idea. Great advice from our guest, Bianca Loriano. Thank you so much, Bianca. And thank you to all my sexy listeners. Tune in again for another episode of The Trouble with Sex. Until next time, stay well, stay sexy. This episode was brought to you by Uberlube. To find out more, go to thetroublewithsex.com or email me at drtammy at thetroublewithsex.com. Join our mailing list, follow us on social media, sign up for our newsletter, or send me a question. The Trouble with Sex is produced by Brandy Savitt and Jane Applegate. Our audio is by Flavor Lab, New York City. This episode was recorded on location by Bruce Hirschfield and mixed by Eric Stern with music by Bruce Hirschfield. Bye.